For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. I don't really want to move too far off that thought quickly. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he forever lives to make intercession for us. Are you not learning this verse? Or are you just all shy? I, I really, really, I really, really want to drive this home to you. Please learn this verse. Let it bathe your soul over and over and over again until it, until it forms and shapes itself in your life. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, completely, forever, those who come to God through him because he, our eternal high priest, forever lives to intercede for them. Personalize it. Jesus is able to save me completely. It is truths like that that enable us to hold on and to hang in when the foundations around us are shaking and falling apart. And when we can't see past the next couple of days, let alone forever, we need that truth. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me, I will keep. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hands. The Father and I are one, and no one will be able to snatch me out of the Father's hand. He will hold me fast. Our faith does not depend upon us. It depends upon the promises and strength of our eternal Savior, who is at the right hand of the Father, praying today for us. I want to talk to you this morning and encourage you that when all is said and discussed and debated and done, there is only one way to please God in life. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Of all of the book of Hebrews, this is probably the one you're familiar with the most, this chapter. We've probably looked at it and called it the Hall of Faith and a variety of other things where it has this great description of faith. The Word of God is described as bread, food for the soul. It's described as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Word of God is described as the 
the seed of God, whereby God comes alive in our lives. Today I want to talk to you about another, a different description of the Bible that James brings to our attention, whereby the Bible is a mirror that we look at and we see ourselves. And today as we launch into a passage that's very familiar to you, I want to really personalize it. That's what I've been praying about all week. I'm very familiar with this text, but I can honestly tell you that spending time this week was among the richest times in God's Word ever. It came alive to me in new ways. It has a power uh, contained therein that I trust and I've been praying will strengthen your resolve to be committed to the Lord. And I am convinced, as was the preacher in Hebrews, that you will continue to live a life committed to Jesus Christ. I'm convinced of that. As I look upon our church family, I have every reason to believe, but not because of us, not because of our human strength, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave us our salvation. For that reason and that reason alone, I am entirely confident that you will continue to live a life committed to Jesus Christ. And I want to show you today in God's word why I am so committed to that and why I'm so persuaded that that will happen. But before we launch too far into the word of God this morning, I was thinking about how critical this is, how truly watershed this part of the scriptures are in terms of our relationship with the living God. This is not a, an exercise that's going to be uh, uh, just merely interesting, but that my prayer was that this would so impact your soul, so refresh you, so strengthen you, so uh, further commit you to the resolve of hanging in and holding on to what you believe, that this would be a, an aha moment. This would be a wow day for you. But, but before we do that, maybe you didn't have time this morning to just get quiet with the Lord and ask Him to do a powerful work in your life through His Word. You know, that's, that's how it works. We have to ask Him, and He will speak to us. And rather than me pray for you, I'm going to invite you just quietly right now where you are to take a moment and you pray for yourself. You ask that God would do a work, a powerful work and a mighty work in your heart this morning through his word and then I'll pray. Lord, in this moment with the holy people of God, set apart for your purposes. In the presence of a holy and awesome God who invites us to ask him. We don't have because we don't ask. I believe that today you're going to do a powerful work in each of our hearts and our lives through your word to us. 
And so, Lord, because of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, and because we know that he is praying for us even now, that you would do a mighty work in our lives. I thank you, O oh God, for what you're about to do. I thank you for the moment this will be as a congregation to know that we will continue to live a life committed to Jesus Christ and we will know why and we will have confidence and assurance, O oh God. And if there's someone here who at the end of all of this doesn't, then I pray, O oh God, today, today you would bring that heart to yourself. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen. I usually don't give the punchline at the beginning of the sermon, but I think I will today because I want you to be looking for it the whole time that we're talking. I'm going to ask at the very end of the service, do you have this faith? Do you have this faith? Because this is not just an exercise of information. This is a matter of life and death, of heaven and hell, of eternity. Do you have, and I want you to be thinking about this as we talk about it, do you have this faith? It will become apparent to you because as we look in the mirror today of God's word, it will be crystal clear, abundantly clear. This will not be ambiguous. This section of God's word is not hard to understand. It is very forceful, very honest, and very clear. And I pray that I won't mess that up. That's why we pray the Holy Spirit of God would deliver the truth into your heart this morning. So why will you continue to live a life committed to Christ, you ask? Especially in light of the fact that uh, more and more we are becoming unnerved by the landscape, the increasing minority status that we occupy as people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, I think most of us were probably pretty horrified or at least never imagined. I, I could never have imagined that I would be alive to see the day when the Queen's representative, our Governor General, would hold people who believe in Creator God in contempt. I never ever thought I would live to see that day. Had she have made a disparaging comment about certain sexuality, she would have lost her job. But you can dishonor Almighty God and hold Him in contempt today at the very highest offices of our land. And several days later, our Prime Minister congratulated her for speaking truth. The disregard for the place of religious beliefs in Canada is now almost complete. This week, Trinity Western University will defend or attempt to defend the Supreme Court its right to have a law school against 
the Law Society of British Columbia and Upper Canada, which is Ontario and Quebec, who in, their, who in their ruling at the lower court have determined that Trinity Western University should not have a law school to train people in matters of law and justice. If you can imagine a Christian institution training people in law and justice who believe in the judge of all, is that not the ultimate in law and justice? Because in their value statement is this name, the name Jesus Christ, which they have declared, and this is the word they've used, troubling. Troubling that Jesus Christ is a value to that school. If the Supreme Court upholds the fact that Jesus Christ is troubling, then we probably in this room will live to see the day, at least some of us, maybe not me, I hope I'm too old, will live to see the day when you won't be allowed to be a lawyer if you're a Christian, or a doctor, or a teacher. Don't think that this doesn't matter. Don't think that we should ignore this and not call out to our great God in prayer. This is a critical moment in the history of our country. So I encourage you to pray. Pray fervently. I believe it's November 30th is the case. So why will we not shrink back in the face of all of this that's coming upon us? In this particular section of Scripture, we have a heritage of faithfulness. Do you understand what chapter 11 is if you've never taken a look at it? It's the story upon story of lives lived by faith. In fact, it's the theme of the whole section. There's a phrase that keeps reappearing there. I counted 17 times. I counted it quickly. I didn't double check. I might be wrong. 17 times, though, there's this phrase. What's that phrase? Have you ever looked? Do your eyes gaze upon it even now as your Bibles are open? By faith. By faith. Now, there's a lot of descriptions out there of people of faith. I don't like to be heaped in the big barrel called people of faith. Because Muslims are people of faith, according to the descriptions of our world. Buddhists are people of faith. Hindus are people of faith. Animists are people of faith. By God's definition, there's only one kind of people of faith. It's described here, and we'll look at that today because we want to answer the question, do you have this faith? If you don't have this faith, you're not a people of faith. So what is it? We have this history, a heritage of faithfulness. This is a, a, a description of people through different times of history and more hostile times to us who have hung on and held on like them, you and I, if we are the real thing, will not throw our convictions away no matter how difficult it gets around us. 
because they, like us, are not preserved or protected by their own human strength to believe. What we are going to discover today is this is a special enablement of God. God gives us faith to believe. And because we are not relying on our own strength to believe, but rather enabled by God who gives us this gift of faith, He will hold us fast. And our convictions will hold. And this is why the preacher was confident that his congregation would hold, because they had the same um, eternal high priest who is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he ever intercedes for them. So the question is, why should I? Maybe we ask that question, why will you? And we'll come back to that, but why should I? So I want to pick it up at verse 32 of chapter 10, actually, because that's where this really starts. The chapter 11 is an intrusion into the flow. It really starts here. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property just because you were a Christian, by the way. And don't think these days are too far away. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Powerful statement number one. So do not throw away your confidence. Powerful statement number two, it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. Powerful statement number three, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Why will we? Why should we? For in just a very little while, he who is coming, who's that? Christ, will come and not delay. Maranatha, I say, come Lord Jesus. But my righteous one, who's that? You who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But then he quickly says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. And here's the reason. Verse 1 of chapter 11. This tells us why. So you will not, why should you? You will not be consumed by the trinkets of this culture because you yourselves know you have better and lasting possessions, don't you? You will not throw away your confidence in the mission so to, to uh, sacrificially serve Christ because you know that you will be richly rewarded. 
You will persevere against the most extreme things. Hang on, hang in when all the supporting structures give way because when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. Won't you? Unless we don't believe this. So, his congregation as ours, you face difficult things. This past week, Within this congregation, I'm sure, there were phone calls you wish you didn't get. There was information you wish was different. There are things before you that you know are hard to face. And you look around yourselves as they did, and you ask the question, why should I hope? Why, why should I live a life of radical abandon to Christ? Why should I give up the pleasures of sin and face the pains of living righteously? Why should I sacrifice a level of lifestyle that I could have so that I can invest my finances in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I look around myself and I see those who disgrace God, enjoying the good life. Their health concerns are similar to mine. They seem to be no more healthy, no less healthy than I am. So why should I hope? And why will you? The truth of the matter is, even if you're feeling like this today and you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, I know you will hang in. I know you will. I'm confident of that. I'm confident of that because what I'm going to share with you in the Word of God. So why will you? By the way, this is not what I'm going to share with you today, extraordinary Christian life. This is what we would call the normal Christian life. Being able to have this confidence and be this sure about who you are and who you are in Christ is not for the supercharged guys and ladies in Christ. It's for every one of you. It's the expectation of every one of you. It's the, it's the possession of every one of you. This is called the normal Christian life. In fact, C.S. Lewis probably described it the best when he said, it's mere Christianity because that's what this is. What I'm going to share with you today is mere Christianity. But it is power-packed because Christianity is not nothing. It is spectacular. Having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, having Him commend you, having Him be pleased with you, having Him call you a people of God is spectacular. There is nothing greater in all the world. Amen. So that's where we're at this morning. But it's normal Christian life. It's not the extraordinary because you are not of those, verse 39, you are not of those who shrink back. You are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. That's who you are. That's who you will remain to be because of Jesus. We aren't pioneers, by the way, of a new untested product here. That's the point of this text. That's why this preacher reverted to the Old Testament stories. 
What he was telling them is, this is not an untested thing that I'm talking to you about. This is an inheritance, a heritage of faithful people down through the ages who have demonstrated this kind of life and are now rewarded for it, are now in the presence of the living God. This is not a stock that might soar. This is a whole history of humans who were sold out to please God. And we are part of that long line of those who do not shrink back, no matter what happens around us. It's a common trait. So what does it look like? I know you're dying to get to that. What does this common trait look like that defines us as the people of God? There's two things, two defining characteristics that are found right here in the text of the normal Christian life. And it is the enablement, the indisputable enablement to please God is given to him by you, by him, and you live by faith. Now, I'm going to start with the second trait and then go to the first, because the second trait is illustrated in verse 3. But the first trait is this. You, distinctly, differently from the world, are certain of what you do not see. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he re- rewards those who earnestly seek him. Two distinct character traits. Do you have this faith? You are certain of what you do not see because in what you do see, you see God. Let me be very clear. The word certain here, which as I said is the second trait in verse 1, the word certain here, translated by the New American Standard, is convictions. These are your convictions. You are convicted by what you do not see. But in this particular, this particular verse, I actually really love the King James rendering. The word that they use is evidence. And I like it. And you're going to see why, because in verse 3, it gives us the point. This kind of faith are people who see behind the visible to the invisible. Notice verse 3. This whole issue is predicated on the matter of creation. By faith. It's not accidental that the Holy Spirit of God led the preacher to begin this litany of faith by starting at creation. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. I am 
as you know, a convicted, certain proponent of God as creator in six days. Six literal 24-hour period days. And I'm convicted of that, and I will explain to you why, primarily because of this text. The evidence of faith in your life, based on the definition by God himself, is that when you look at creation, you see God. Okay? So when that is laid out as the central foundation to how God describes people of faith, it catches my attention. And he sources it in our handling of the invisible and the visible. The distinction between materialists and people of faith by the definition we have here in the Bible is that materialists are certain only of what they see. People of faith are certain of what they do not see because what they see convinces them of what they can't see. When I look into the heavens, when I gaze at the animal kingdom, when I gaze at the landscape of this world, I only see one thing. I see God. And I'm not... I'm not telling you this because it should be something I should say to you. I am telling you, I'm giving you a testimonial. And it continues to recur. It's not something that I settled a long time ago, even though I did. It's something that is an ongoing reality for me. It doesn't matter what I do, where I go, what I look at. When I see creation, I see God. And that's not because... That's not because I have somehow intellectually imagined this kind of stuff. It is because God has enabled me to see the invisible. That's what faith is. People who actually have faith have been granted the ability by God to see his visible creation and say, God, that's the difference. Now, um, our governor general and the majority of people she represents, sadly, do not have the eyes of faith. They live by sight because that's all they have unless God changes that. That's the message of salvation in reality. So this difference, the faithful look at what is seen and by evidence, as King James Version nicely states it, conviction, certainty, see the invisible. As if God himself were visibly on display. So what, was, what is seen 
was not made out of what is visible. That's exactly what the people of God believe. Materialists, on the other hand, conclude that the visible made the visible. That is diametrically opposed to any sort of definition of faith as God has declared it. Now, um, I have been for years urging you, pleading with you, not to become what is labeled now a progressive in your theology. I have been urging you since I arrived here. And anybody who knows me, and you know me, I am virtually entrenched in a theological positions. And not progressive. I think there's truth and there's error. I don't think there's any secondary important things in the Bible. I think everything is primarily important. I know I'm, I'm, I'm out there almost by myself, to be honest. I believe that what we're calling secondary is to excuse people who are in error. I don't think Jesus ever told me. Jesus never told me that anything in his word was secondary. Everything's primary. Everything matters. You either interpret what God says as truth, or if you interpret it incorrectly, it's error. That doesn't mean I'm uncharitable or unkind or unfriendly to others who are in this big family called Christian. But I'm not going to move into the areas of progressive evangelicalism or secondary issues. I don't have a red-letter Bible where what Jesus said is primary and what everybody else said was secondary because a lot of the stuff people are calling secondary would have been red-letter in the first place. Anyway, that's a bit of a rant. (laughs) But now I have proof positive of why I have been telling you these things by the destruction of a life that I have received last night uh, from uh, my brother in Christ, Steve Mills, who sent me an article, which I know is of the Lord because it came in perfect timing. Bart Campolo. Bart Campolo is the son of a much-beloved part of the family of God named Tony Campolo. Bart Campolo has abandoned the faith completely. And he states this. Well, Bart Campolo says, progressive Christians turn into atheists. And here's his reason, and I quote him. Because once you start adjusting your theology to match up to the reality you see in front of you, It's an infinite progression. So over the course of the next 30 years, my ability to believe in a supernatural narrative or a God who intervenes and does anything died 
a death of a thousand unanswered prayers. There is a distinction and a critical, critical distinction about what God, why God is saying this about seeing the invisible to us. And why living by faith is entirely different than living by sight. If you have to live by sight, you will progressively adjust your theology to match your sight and your experiences until one day your theology is no longer theology at all. God disappears. And his father constructed the training wheels of his destruction, which is tragic and sad. He says, I had a theology that said God could intervene and do stuff. And after a period of unanswered prayer, I had to change my understanding of God's sovereignty, and sovereignty had to get dialed down a bit. And once I changed the view of God's sovereignty, it was the beginning of the end of my faith, he says. Of course it is. Of course it is. And so when you start to tweak the creation story, to accommodate the laboratory that you're working in, to be a progressive evangelical. Eventually, the sovereign God who made the universe is no longer God at all. It's distressing for us. The difference between Faith, as defined here, being certain of what you do not see, and those who are faithless is that they are certain only of what they do see and experience. And let me make one important comment about prayer. Prayer is probably the central, most important discipline to undergird faith. It is, if not the, it is one of the most important disciplines to validate that you actually are a person of faith as defined by this, certain of what you do not see. That's what prayer is. We come to an invisible God, certain that he is hearing us and has called us into his prayer room. But what about the thousands of unanswered prayers in your life? Is that going to train wreck your faith? Let me offer you a very trite illustration. Two young men in our church praying that God would give them a particular young woman to be their wife. Same woman. And your God one of them is going to have, from their perspective, their prayer unanswered, aren't they? And maybe even both of them. Prayer is not checking in with God and telling him how you plan to be sovereign over your life. That makes you and I God. Prayer is calling out to our loving Heavenly Father and telling Him our heart 
and knowing that he is the only one who is able to help us. Whether he answers our prayer the way we want him to answer it or whether it goes a different way, it is the truth that our God has made the decision. Creation screams to me the hand of Almighty God. But secondly, the second type characteristic of this type of person is to be sure of what you hope for. You see it there, right at the front of the verse? To be sure. Faith is being sure of what you hope for. And by the way, because of what you, what you are hoping for are the promises God has made himself. That, if you read through all the list of these by faith, it's the promises. They've believed what God has said to them. They're sure of it. People who please God, you see, who are commended by God, treat what they have been invited to hope for as if they already have it. That's what sure means, assurance. Again, King James, the substance. Now, faith is the substance of what we hope for. That's a different kind of hope. That's like when you have already purchased the tickets for the dream vacation and you already have them and you're hoping to go on them. No, no, this is just confidence. This is just, this is just enthusiasm. We're just excited about what we get to have. That's what this kind of hope is. This, this hope is, 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 you know, Lynn always tells me, I'd rather you not just surprise me at the last moment. I, I don't love surprises. I love anticipation. Any other ladies like that? Are you like that? Is that what the lady thing is like? Uh, you like anticipation. So she says, I don't want you to spring something on me. I, I want you to, to tell me months in advance how you're going to lavish me with this wonderful thing so I can anticipate it for months and months. That's what this hope is. What God has told us, we are sure he lavishes love upon us and so we are so sure about it that we are anticipating it for years and years and years that Jesus is coming, is he not? And so this is what this hope is all about. On Thursday, I walked into the church and I immediately was in my happy place. Now, at church, I say the church building where you gather, you all weren't here, so you, you know all the semantics of that. I don't want to give you bad theology. I walked into this building, and, and it was my happy place. Why? Because of a certain smell Thursday morning in this church. It was my happy smell. You know what it was? You all know what it was? Turkey. <laughs> Turkey cooking. That is my happy place. That is my happy smell. I walked in there like, oh. But you know what? I was crushed very quickly because I was not sure of the hope that I would get to eat it. <laughs> you know why? Because it occurred to me I hadn't bought a ticket to the retirees' annual Christmas gala event. But I want you to know something. That smell to me 
was the substance of things hoped for. It was like that is, it's as if I am eating that turkey. We're going to die. You know, when you smell it, when you walk into the house and you smell that, it's like we are dining on turkey. Does the word of God not say to us, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good? Is that not what the experience of Christ in us is all about? Is that not what the gathering of us together to experience the Christ reality in all of our lives together? Is that not what, when we gathered here this morning and lifted up our hearts and sang to our God with all of our hearts, was that not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good as if we had the very substance of God himself that he had promised? Of course it is. Of course it is. That's who the people of faith are. They are certain of what they can't see, the invisible God. They are sure of what they hope for because it's anticipation. It's happening. It will happen. And we wrap this up with two illustrations of lives that will help us to, f- to really bring this together It was that kind of confidence that drove a Jim Elliott into the hostile Ecuadorian jungle against all common sense, but with 2020 gospel vision, believing that if a tribe that had never heard of Jesus were to have a preacher and hear the gospel, they would come to know him. And that's what caused him to offer this, perhaps the greatest statement that outside of Scripture that a Christian has ever made. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, material things, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal things. Beloved, that's encapsulating what it means to be a people of God, a person of faith. You are not a fool to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. And he illustrates it with Abel and Cain. What's the difference? Everything you do when you are a person of faith, is a conscious acknowledgement of the God who is. It's not what you do, but how you do it that counts. Cain and Abel both brought a sacrifice to God. What was the difference? What was the difference? The preacher of Hebrews further elaborates here. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man. When God spoke well of his offerings. Why did God speak well of Abel's offerings but not of Cain's offering? There's been a lot of scholarly ink spilled on answering that question. I'm going to give you an answer that will seem incredibly simplistic and you might want to cuff me for it. What was the difference? The difference was Because God spoke well of Abel and his offering. 
That's what made the difference. And why did God speak well of Abel and his offering, but not of Cain and his offering? We can only conclude that it's because, and the text says here, because Abel gave his offering by faith, and Cain did not. And faith has been defined for us. It's certainty. It's sure. It's sure of the invisible. It's certain of what you hope for. Cain, for whatever reason, brought a sacrifice, but not by faith. We don't know how he brought it, but we can speculate. It's the same reason possibly some of you may have come to church today. Some of you came to church by faith. Hopefully all of you or most of you, but some of you came by flesh. You see, we don't know, but Cain may have put on, he may have brought a sacrifice for show. Look at me. I'm presenting the great sacrifice. I I need to be congratulated, or maybe for status. Or maybe he brought his his sacrifice uh, to keep the peace in the family. He could hear resonating in his ear Adam or Eve telling him, Cain, you got to take a sacrifice to God. Maybe some of you are here in church today because you hear your father speaking or your mother telling you, you got to get up and go to church. And so you're just here by habit. Or maybe it's just, maybe it was a bribe. Cain brought his sacrifice to God to bribe him so that now God owes him something. Don't kid yourself. Church gatherings like this are littered with people who are here for one reason and one reason only because now God has to bless me. Now he owes me. And sure he's going to, I need something good to happen to me this week. I've got an important decision. I better go to church. Abel brought his offering because he believed in God and God alone. Amen. It was an act of total trust and belief. And to that, God commends One other guy, Enoch. We'll quickly wrap it up. Why Enoch? Why Enoch? Do you know anything about Enoch? It says there that by faith, God was pleased with him, commended him. Enoch lived 365 years. He died a youngster. The Enoch story is quite amazing because it doesn't give us a description here, but it gives a description in Genesis. The difference between Enoch and everybody else is he, while he was looking around life, we look at finances, he could look at fame, he could look at peace and happiness and health. But it says in the description of Enoch, there was one thing he chose. And what was it? Do you remember? To walk with God. Of all that he looked at in life, that was what he wanted. To walk with God. And God declared that faith. God declared that the commendation and pleasing of God because of how he had lived was the distinction. And it says there that God took him so that he would not taste of death. 
as a relative youngster. Why do I say that? Because he didn't live to see the fact that his son would set a lifespan record. Methuselah, 967 years. And nor did he live to see his great-grandson build a, a boat, a giant boat. So at the relative young age, like us, uh, we would compare, uh, in his 30s, God took him. And, and can you imagine, like, one day they were like, where's Enoch? Anybody seen Enoch? What happened to Enoch? Like, nobody's seen him anymore. I, I was just talking to him a week ago, but I have not seen him. You were like, where's Enoch? You don't think the Lord took him, do you? And then, can you imagine, maybe they were like, whoa, the Lord took him. That's a real shame. That's sad. Maybe we should have a funeral. Think about this. The distinction between Enoch and others was God was his reward. In all the other choices, he walked with God and God was his reward. Do we think that way? When one of our brothers or our sisters is taken home to be with the Lord? That it's a reward? Our reward? We have fi now finally realized our reward? For this, Enoch was commended, pleased the Lord, so much so that he cut his life short on this earth so that he could have the fullness of his reward with the living God early. Do you have this kind of faith? I want to encourage you with a challenge to review the various things of your life, your finances, your time, your calendar, how you use your talents, and answer this question, do I have this faith? Father, I thank you today for defining for us with clarity who receives a commendation, who pleases you. I pray, O oh God, that we might be among those, and I'm convinced we are, who will not shrink back because we believe we have better and lasting possessions and we will be richly rewarded if we continue in the will of God. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Let me offer a caution and then a promise to you. If you are the kind of person whose faith depends on what you can see 
or what you experience. Your beliefs will die on the shoals of a thousand unanswered prayers. The distinction, as we read on in the text, was those who were commended, who pleased God, were still living by faith when they died, not having received the promise, but only seeing it afar. That's the Christian life. That's normal Christianity. That's mere Christianity. What we see takes us to the invisible. And there alone is our reward. Faith is believing that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him even though you may not see it in this life. Our Father, I pray, O oh God, and thank you for your special visitation today through your word to our hearts. I pray, O oh God, that we would be those people of faith. I know we will be because you are the one who holds us up. You cause us to hang in. We are not among those who will shrink back, but we are those who have put our faith and trust and by believing will be saved. So Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.